0: Hello once again, thanks for joining us on Space Nuts. It's a show about astronomy and space science. And this week we have got a lot on the agenda. It's uh, very telescopic this week. We'll be focusing on, boom, boom, the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, it's in the news again. Uh, we'll also be talking about the telescope SOFIA, which is sort of at the un- other end of its life spectrum, uh, telescopically speaking and we will be focused on the sun as well because it could actually be a very helpful tool going forward for our, uh, in regard to looking into space. Uh, we've got a question from Rusty and Donny Brook, uh, which is also focused on the James Webb Space Telescope, uh, one about weird radio signals, and a nice little note from Jordan that we want to share with you. That's all coming up on this edition, episode 303 of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9,
1: ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3...
0: And joining me as he does every week without fail because he's chained to the desk and uh, can't possibly get away is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How's it going today? Yeah, pretty good. bit wet. We're getting more showers. Uh, oh, really? But, um, mm-hmm. the, the part that worries me is the big Cold front that's moving in. We're going to get our first lick of winter in a few days. Yes, so, yes. not looking forward to that. Already got the UGG boots on. <laughs> <laughs> Can't live without my UGG boots. Oh dear, no. Mm. It's dreadful, isn't it? Judy hates them. <laughs> Mine are UGG too, but they're a bit smaller. So oh they yeah, they're they're much better, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, these these things are. They go up, nearly go up to my knees. Mm. <laughs> Uh, we better get on with it, Fred. Now um, let's start with a, a bit of an update on the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, it's one of the hot topics in astronomy at the moment. Um, if you do, um, uh, if you if you analyse metadata online, this is the number one topic of interest in astronomy at the moment, and not surprisingly, because it promises so much. So, where are things up to with the James Webb Space Telescope? uh it, it's all good news actually andrew
2: so of course the telescope launched uh, on christmas day last year is uh safely at its uh, observing position the l2 lagrange point about uh, one and a half million kilometers beyond um, um beyond the earth in the in the solar system uh, on the direction away from the sun so uh its, uh, its mirror is all unfurled, of course, but uh, I guess the, the recent news is that the telescope's uh, focusing processes, the, this uh, process of aligning the, the, the telescope mirror segments, first of all, uh, and then aligning the instruments that those mirror segments will feed is complete uh, as of the 28th of April. Uh, so that means that we can, you know, we can, the telescope's essentially usable now as, a, as an in- instrument for delivering images. And actually, you don't have to look far on the on the, 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 the space.com website to see um, uh, the uh, some of the imagery that's been sent back. And it looks fabulous, Andrew. It looks really terrific mm. uh, from the various cameras. Um, what's in progress now is the 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 next stage which is cooling the detectors because uh being an infrared telescope um the uh the the, the James Webb looks at effectively heat radiation infrared is radiant heat although <clears throat> at the near infrared end there's not much heat in it <laughs> um it's it it's a long a large spectrum of Of wavelengths, which include, you know, the 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 idea of heat coming from other objects in space. But you can imagine how much heat you get from a star or a or a distant galaxy. That's why it's got such a big mirror. But in order to be able to detect infrared radiation, uh, you have to have your instruments cooled uh, in the region of uh, well, two or three degrees above absolute zero, and some of them are even less than that, uh, as I understand it. So. Uh, absolute zero minus 273 degrees Celsius. So that cooling process uh, is in progress. Uh, I believe that the MIRI instrument, that's the mid-infrared instrument, is uh, is well on its way to achieving that temperature. Uh, It's done by really very clever refrigerators that use uh, liquid helium as their refrigerant we actually use them in ground-based astronomy as well as space-based astronomy so it's a thumbs up on all fronts um and you know it's only a month away now or maybe a little bit more than that but not too much longer before we'll start seeing the first science images coming from the web that yeah, that's, really, that's exciting.
0: really exciting. Can't wait for that. Uh, I would have thought it would be a fairly easy process to cool things down in space. It is a it is a pretty cold climate.
2: Yeah, that's right. And, in fact, some uh, spacecraft instruments are what you call radiatively cooled. That means you just cool them by radiating heat into space, mm. paint them black, that'll do it, and put them out of the light of the sun. Um but uh, these are active cooling systems that uh, that are being used on on the web, at least on some of the instruments. So um, yeah, it's an easy process. But when you uh, when you when you control uh, when you have to control the temperature to within a fraction of a degree, uh, then it's quite challenging. Uh, I, I should say that the reason why you have to do that is that the detectors themselves. Uh, of course, uh, are warm. And so if you didn't cool them, uh, they would swamp themselves by their own radiant heat, uh, the, the infrared that they're radiating, and you wouldn't see anything because it would just be white images. Uh, so that's why they've got to be cooled down to, to get rid of all that thermal noise, as we call it.
0: It's, uh, it's very technical, isn't it? There's so, there's so much to consider. And yeah, indeed. Uh, I must and- say I'm very impressed uh with how well this has gone touch wood don't want to put the mocker on them but uh i've got to say that everything's just gone swimmingly um even even when they ran into a problem they had a very easy solution and enacted it very quickly so uh it's it's been a a heck of a mission so far let's just hope it keeps going that way
2: yeah it's uh
0: it is it's it's it's
1: um, it's
2: kind of exemplary. It's exactly what you know you hope will happen. It's NASA at its very best, which is indeed.
0: fabulous. All right. There'll be more news on James Webb very soon. In fact, uh, when we get to our question segment, we will indeed be uh, answering a technical question in that regard. Uh, now, still on... Um, Space telescopes, uh, one that uh, I think a lot of people will be familiar with once we describe it is SOFIA. Uh, sadly, though, uh, it's coming to its um, uh, end of life. Yeah, that's
2: right. Uh, which, which certainly for the users of SOFIA is, um, yes, is very disappointing. So, what is it? It is the, the name is an acronym for the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. So, once again, it's an infrared telescope. Uh which this time doesn't fly in space, it flies uh in the body of a 747 SP, the yeah. special performance version of the 747, um with which was which has this whole cutaway in the side of the fuselage. Uh and uh I think it's about a two-meter telescope, it might be a little bit bigger than that, uh, which 2.5 meter, there you go. Uh which is mounted towards the rear of the 747. Um the thing the Telescope itself weighs 17 tonnes, Andrew, so mm-hmm. it's not a small piece of kit. So that's no. two, two and a two-and-a-half-metre telescope. And the idea is that you um, you fill the, fill the plane up with astronomers and technical support staff, of course, um, and fly it up to heights uh, in the region of 12, 13, 14, perhaps even higher kilometres, where you're above virtually all the... Uh, mo- moisture in the atmosphere, all the water vapor, because the infrared wavelengths that the telescope is looking at are the ones that are absolutely um, slaughtered by water vapor. In other words, you know, if you put your telescope at the at sea level, there's so much water vapor in the atmosphere that you don't see anything. But once you get up to those heights, um, forty thousand feet and above, there they are essentially uh, seeing through a clear atmosphere in terms of the the water vapour absorption. Uh, So it's been very, very productive. Uh, I've got a colleague, uh, actually, Stuart Ryder, who's used it uh, several times. I think he's flown on it maybe twice maybe once mm. uh, he will be very disappointed uh, because his research essentially needs the, those infrared wavelengths that uh, sophia can see uh, and it's a little bit controversial because the um, that sophia uh, can observe wavelengths that the web telescope can't Uh, and it's you know the web's going to do some marvelous things but there are there are frequencies that uh, Sophia looks at that that aren't covered by by the JWST so um, why is it being closed Uh, especially being closed down early because it was originally going to have a 20-year lifetime Um, but in fact it was uh, only eight years ago that it was first commissioned and the answer is Uh, it's a cost-saving venture, Andrew, um, because its operating cost is roughly the same as the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, And that perhaps puts it into perspective. It's roughly 85 million US dollars a year, the operational cost, Uh, very similar to Hubble. Um, And, uh, you know, if you compare the number of people who've seen results from Hubble with the number of people who've seen results from SOFIA, uh, that puts it a little bit more in perspective. I should mention, by the way, it's not just NASA that operates uh, operates SOFIA, it's also the German Aerospace uh, Centre, the DLR. So uh, yes, it's going to be wound up uh, by the 30th of September this year. And um, it's it, uh, it, it's yes, it's it's a sad outcome. Um, I, I guess it's also a reflection, though, on its priority uh, in the uh, that, that sort of review of of astronomy that's carried out. There's one in the United States, one here in Australia, and there are others throughout the world. The decadal surveys, where astronomers are canvassed as to what. You know what their future requirements are, what sort of work they want to do, and uh, in last year's decadal survey, Sophia came out fairly low in its rankings,
1: Mm.
2: Um, and that's another reason why NASA and the DLR have together decided to basically to uh, uh, you know to shelve it. Um, I. Haven't said what it's
0: done, and I'm hoping you're going to well, say. So, what has it done, Fred? <laughs> I, I was about to say. Um, well, I was going to go down a different path, but that is okay. probably the <laughs> most obvious thing we, we <laughs> should talk about. Some of its achievements, yes. Yeah, yeah, and they're pretty
2: spectacular. Although, uh, you know, as I said, that they're not really in the same league as the Hubble. But um, the, perhaps the most famous one is the measurement of or the detection of water on. The sunlight side of the moon, Um, water actually locked up in the in the 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 lunar dust. We we, you and I spoke about this. Um, I guess it's probably a year or so ago, but we certainly gave it a a lot of coverage. But uh, another one that's uh, quite uh, prominent um, scientific result and I think um, this is actually the kind of work that my colleague uh, Stuart was involved with measuring um, details of galaxies that you can't see in any other way for example their magnetic fields uh, which you you measure by means by looking at the polarization of the infrared light that's coming from them because um, magnetic fields what they do is they align grains of dust uh, along them, uh, along the magnetic fields. And those grains of dust are orientated in a particular way along the magnetic fields. That imprints itself on the polarisation of the radiation that's passing through the dust and lets you see the magnetic fields. And SOFIA has been uh, really productive in that uh, region, yeah. uh, as well as other science as well. So, um, yeah, it, it has been um, a, a very successful venture, Um but uh, an expensive one, that's the bottom line.
0: Yeah. Uh, one of its lesser known achievements, Fred, is when it comes into land at it, it, its base in California, gets some really good beach photos, especially in summer. <laughs> I believe pretty, so. Pretty impressive. Uh, uh, it, it, I was going to say, it also flies from our part of the world as well, from New Zealand from time to time. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's right. We did talk about that. At one stage. Um, I, but sort of getting back to reality, reading between the lines in the article uh, that I've got in front of me, um, there, there's a lot of sadness behind all this. Uh, a lot of people are very, very unhappy that it's that it's coming to an end. Yeah. Mm.
2: Well, always when a facility like this is brought to a close, yes, it's uh, uh, it's not a happy time. Um, uh, but, you know, in many ways it's a reflection of the, the world we live in. Uh, and that, um, I suppose, frugality with resources is common throughout the whole world of astronomy because uh, astronomers tend to do things on a shoestring. Uh, Sofia is pretty expensive, as, it, as you'd imagine, to 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 cost you know to fly a, uh, an aircraft like that, which needs a crew. It's not like a robotic spacecraft that can sit there and do its own thing with nobody looking after yeah. it. Um, it's um, so it's yeah it's it's. Uh, it, it, well, it, it's just a, a victim, I guess, of uh, not so much cost cutting as, uh, but of that frugality that I was talking about. Yeah, uh, astronomers want to put their resources where they're going to produce the most science.
0: What do you think is going to happen to all the the hardware, the plane, the telescope itself? What, what will they do with all that? I don't know the answer. Garage to that. sale. Uh, it could be a
2: garage sale. Could wind up in a museum. That's, uh, the uh, that's what I was thinking, actually. Yeah, the telescope itself. And the hardware that goes with it um, has probably got, you know, a reusable value. It's a significant infrared telescope uh, equipped with state-of-the-art instrumentation. So, yeah, interesting view. A lot of the technology of the telescope, though, is specific to the fact that it looks through a hole in the fuselage of an aircraft. It's got this huge... um, uh, um, Elevation bearing in it, uh, altitude bearing, as we call it, the one that um, that lets the the, the telescope look move up and down. Mm. Uh, An enormous bearing with big structure attached to it. Yeah, be really interesting to see what happens. We might pick up on that story when there's a bit more news on it.
0: I suppose so. Yeah, Um, it's just been an amazing project and uh, one of probably a unique way of of taking observations uh, you know, and people must be wondering how can they get a stable image when they're flying at you know 900 kilometers an hour in the yeah. upper atmosphere trying yeah. to point a telescope at something but they, they'd have all that covered.
2: Yeah they do yeah and um, I mean a bit of turbulence wouldn't Come, come in handy would it not really <laughs> no some of the stuff that you go through when you when you're on these long-haul flights um well just one final comment um which has just come to mind uh SOFIA itself wasn't the first of these it um, replaced uh an inst- uh, telescope called the Kuiper Airborne Observatory the KAO I can't remember what term what aircraft that had a hole cut in it for? Um, but it, but it was it was a different aircraft, a different uh, venture. And Sophia was the successor to KAO.
0: Okay. Yeah, I'm just trying to find out now what the aircraft was. Looks like it might have been a Galaxy. That's um, possible. Yes.
2: Yeah. It's. Yeah. It, it certainly wasn't a seven four seven.
0: It's a Lockheed Starlifter. There you are. There you go. Mm. There you go. I knew I'd find it. <laughs>
2: I knew you would too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, uh, we will um, uh, watch with interest uh, as things develop with James Webb and uh, the um, the beginning of the end of Sophia. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred
1: Watson. Roger, you're here, Labster here space nuts
0: now I've talked in the past about uh, all our social media platforms and that includes uh, Facebook uh, it includes and that is the official space nuts page on Facebook and the space nuts podcast group uh, join both doesn't cost any extra <laughs> uh, there's also YouTube and uh, hello to everybody watching on all of those platforms right now because we do the show live every week the um, the unabridged version I think you'd call it um we're on twitter we're on tiktok yeah i know uh and i don't know where else we are a few others but uh social media is a very important part of our um repertoire and gives an opportunity for people to um to to sort of talk outside of the podcast so that they can uh, chat to each other and ask each other questions and share photos and and Whatever they like, it's uh, it's really good that um, social media's been able to uh, sort of value add to the podcast. So um, find us on your favourite social media platform and, and join the ranks. We'd love for you to be a part of it all, and don't forget to leave reviews uh, on your pod- podcast platforms. We we love your reviews. Uh, we've been getting a few really good ones lately, so thank you to those people. <clears throat> Now, Fred, let us uh, move on to the the next topic, and uh, we're still talking sort of space observation, but this is this is. Um this relates to gravitational lensing, which we've talked about before. The, this this trick of the um, uh, of the universe that allows you to see things in different ways and sometimes in different time scales. Uh, it's um, it, it's a, a pretty neat trick that, that they've uh, been able to observe and take advantage of. But now, looks like the sun might be able to help us in this regard. That's exciting. I I think it is too. Um, I um,
2: I love this story because. I kind of foreshadowed it uh, nearly 20 years ago in my book, um, um, Stargazer, The Life and Times of the Telescope, because that winds up with the idea of a black hole telescope that uses the gravitational distortion of a black hole to form images of very distant objects. So we're not here thinking about manipulating black holes, uh, (laughs) but uh, thinking about um, putting a spacecraft in such a position that you could use the gravitational distortion of the Sun itself uh, to form an image of a very distant exoplanet, up to 100 light years away. So it's it's not a new idea. I mean, gravitational lensing is, as you and I know, is, is used throughout astronomy. Usually it's clusters of galaxies. Uh, that are distorting the space around them uh, in such a way that they magnify the images of more distant galaxies beyond Mm. uh, and let you see some of the structure in those distant galaxies and certainly see them a lot brighter than you otherwise would and in fact in one case which we covered recently uh, a single star in the early universe has been imaged by this gravitational lensing technique it's Fantastic stuff uses a huge amount of computing power, uh, as well as um, you know the technology of big telescopes looking at these distant galaxy clusters and the even more distant galaxies beyond uh, formed in the gravitational lens. But this um, idea, which has come about because of several different, uh, I, I guess several different um, pieces of innovation that have been put in it into it, uh, that really, I, I think, is the most refined version of this gravitational lensing that we've heard suggested. Uh, and the uh, the work that um, we're describing actually comes principally from the Kavli Institute for Particle Astrophysics and Cosmology, or KIPAC, which is at Stanford in the United States. Um, and... Actually, a PhD student in that um, in that institution, whose name's uh, Alexander Madurovich, I hope I'm pronouncing it properly, uh, he has basically produced an algorithm that will actually reconstruct the image of a planet in some detail uh, from uh, the gravitational le- uh, formed by the gravitational lens produced by the sun. Wow, and um, so the it, it's a, you know w- what you see when you when you look at one of these gravitational lenses. Uh, what you would see if if you could be at the gravitational focal point of the sun would be a sort of blob of of light and info, um, you know light and darkness. But it's the algorithm that you use. To turn that into, in fact, you might see a ring, actually, to start with. Mm. Uh, the algorithm that you can use that uh, to turn it into an image of the distant planet is the clever bit. That's really fantastic news, uh, because I was not c- clear that that would be possible, but it seems to have
0: been so. That's that's rather extraordinary to consider, because up until now, exoplanets have Basically, being left up to um, people to create art versions, artists' yes, impressions. Exactly. So exactly. you're really, you're really not getting a genuine insight no, into what these places might, look, might like. look like. But yeah. to be able to actually gather an image, like they did with that um, black hole recently, it's not a photo, but it's it's an image, and and. and construct what would be a, a, an accurate portrayal of an exoplanet. That, that, oh, wow, that would be incredible.
2: Indeed, it would. There is a downside to it, though, Andrew. Aww. <laughs> and that is... Um, in order to see this this ring of light that, that, you know, that metamorphoses into an image of a planet when you put it through the computer system, uh, you've got to be at the what you might call the focal point of the sun's gravitational lens. And that's rather a long way away. Ah. <laughs> In fact, 14 times the distance to Pluto uh, is where that is. Um, uh, I'm not going to do the sun in my head. Pluto's about 30 astronomical units away on average. Uh, actually, no, it. its nearest, it's about 30. It's rather more than that on average. Uh, so 14 times that distance. Now, um, re- remember, it took a decade uh, to get the New Horizons, or the best part of a decade, Uh, I think it was nine years, actually, to get New Horizons, the fastest spacecraft ever launched, actually, uh, in terms of its launch velocity, uh, to get New Horizons to Pluto back in 2015. Um, So you're talking about, with present technology, of order 100 years, um, it's a long, long journey to put your detecting spacecraft in the right place in relation to the sun's gravitational lens but it's not impossible yeah uh, and um if you used some of the techniques that are being talked about for for pushing stars um uh, sorry to for, for pushing spacecraft to the nearest star that's to say the solar or the light sail technology uh, that might allow you to shorten that uh, that intervening time um However, it's still something that I suspect neither you nor I are going to see come to fruition. But I'm so disappointed. Think, uh, <laughs> within 40 or 50 years, uh, it may be that, uh, maybe even less than that, that uh, such a mission will be launched to send a spacecraft to the sun's gravitational focal point. You'd choose a position where you could image, um, you know, m- maybe um, so, so that you would. Get lots and lots of stars in the field of view uh, in order to look at their exoplanet uh, uh, potential. Um, it's um, it's another question as to how you how you'd actually control this gravitational wave telescope. You'd you'd have to move your spacecraft around yeah. uh, in order to to pick up the light uh, that you would want. It may even rely on serendipity that you would just look uh, as the spacecraft travels away from the sun you look at you look back at the sun of course you've got to block out the disc of the sun with something called an occulting disc uh, and look at the ring of light around it uh, but that um that ring uh, as you uh, decompose it into a point image that you know you you might you you might pick up things serendipitously rather than being, being able to aim it at anything. Mm. But there would be certainly some uh, some choice put into what direction you send this spacecraft into uh, to, to, to see, you know, suitable targets on the other side of the sun. I'm not explaining this very well. No, 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 it makes sense um, because,
0: yeah. you know, we're talking 40 or 50 years before potentially launching such a Mission and by yeah. then Canon will have invented a digital camera that can do the same thing. So. That, maybe
2: so, <laughs> yeah, the computing power you put a quantum chip into your camera yep. and it'll do it for you.
0: <laughs> yeah, I reckon at, at the moment I can't use my digital camera on my telescope, not my little one. I can use my big SLR, but um, I'm, I'm going to solve that problem. I reckon if I can work out a way, I'll get some really good shots with that camera because it it's actually a much more powerful camera than my SLR, uh, my little digital. Uh, but that's another problem telescopically speaking. Uh, but, yes, all right, uh, watch this space. 40 or 50 years' time, we'll, uh, we'll <laughs> let you know whether or not that mission is a go. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Zero, two.
1: Space nuts.
0: Radio time to answer some audience questions on Space Nuts this week. Uh, we've got um, one audio question, one text question, and a um, a nice little message. But we'll start off with uh, an audio question uh, from one of our regulars. It's
1: Rusty. Good day, Fred and Andrew. It's Rusty in Donnybrook. I want to ask Fred about an instrument which must be uh, which must be exciting for him. It's the micro shutter on NERCAM on the Webb telescope. Uh, it, they say it can be used to isolate a distant galaxy from those around it so, uh, for spectroscopic analysis. And um, I'm wondering what other uses this instrument can be put to and whether there are uh, analogous uh, instruments on ground-based telescopes. But I'm just wondering if, if things like Um, isolating small parts of a nearby galaxy uh, can be used to uh, do a Doppler analysis uh, across the galaxy so we can look at the different uh, speeds relative to us uh, at all different parts of a galaxy. Uh, Things like that. So really interested in finding out uh, what, what Fred thinks of this instrument and what it might be useful for in infrared light.
0: Thank you, Rusty. That's straight out of the geek handbook, that question. Seriously,
2: <laughs> let me answer the um, last bit first um, because we already do that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of observation of galaxies. We use um, 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 IFUs, which are um, um, yeah. That's a tough... <laughs> what's an IFU again? <laughs> um, it's a, it's an, an image. I'm in, not sure basically... I can say it
0: out loud, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs>
2: These are devices. We we use optical fibres for this. Yeah. So if you imagine a bundle of optical fibres all all placed in contact, and you slap that on the image of a galaxy, um, th- then you, you what what you're doing is you're allowing every bit of that galaxy image to go down a different optical fiber Mm -hmm. and at the other end you can spread them all out into a line and you get a spectrum from each one of them and so you can analyze in great detail the uh you know the 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 the, 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 basically the layout of the uh structure uh, the velocity structure in particular of what's going on in the galaxy and that's a huge part of the uh, the work of the anglo-australian telescope uh, which um, uh, has is basically done surveys of exactly this kind the the new instrument that uh, does all that stuff is called Hector, Uh and it's a multi ifu um, uh, spectroscopic camera
1: <clears throat>
2: so um the, the 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 kind of science that um, Rusty's referring to is already um, stock in trade, uh, at, and and at, the inf- at infrared wavelengths, it's not that much different from what it is at optical wavelengths. It's actually not so easy to use fiber optics at infrared wavelengths because the fibers themselves tend to be warm, and so they radiate, uh, you know, infrared into your detectors. Yeah. But uh, just going specifically to the instrument that um, uh, that Rusty referring to, it's actually um, on micro uh, shutter. Yeah, the micro-shutter. It's on their, on their near-infrared spectrograph or near-spec. Um, there might be one on uh, Mircam as well, but near-spec is the instrument that is closest to my heart in that re- regime. What's a micro-shutter? Well, it's an array of tiny windows, um, and these windows are 100 by 200 microns, so 100 microns is a tenth of a millimetre. Right. So, <clears throat> you know, you immediately get the impression that these are very, very small um, Windows, but the trick is that they can all be closed with a shutter which can be individually addressed. So you've got these, well, in this case, 250,000 windows, each with its own shutter that can be individually addressed. So you can open and close them uh, in any way you want. And if you place that in the focal plane of a telescope, like JWST, which is what we're talking about now, what you can do is, once again, isolate certain parts of the, of the image field. It sounds like a fly's uh, eye. It, it is a bit like a fly's eye. It's rectangular rather than kind of hexagonal like fly's eyes are. And unlike a fly's eye, you can open and shut each element of it mm. at will. Uh, and that's the really the extraordinary part about it. There, it's technology that's actually been around for quite a while, uh, because even when I was working on building multi-fiber instruments, um, uh, you could you could buy uh, not in any sense uh, in in you know s- quite so, such high resolution. In other words, two hundred and fifty thousand of them, but you could buy um, micro mirrors, which are the same sort of thing. But instead of opening a little shutter, what you do is you tilt a mirror, a tiny, tiny mirror. So you've got an array of several thousand of these mirrors, each one of which can be tilted individually to, to di- deflect the light. So um, y- you, know, you, can, you can steer the light away from your detector. So it has the same effect as the shutter but it's in reflection rather than in transmission. Um, So, as I said, that that technology has been around for quite a while. But this, I think, is a a highly refined version of it, the um, micro-shutter array on the Webb telescope. Uh, It's going to be fabulous to see what kind of science it will produce. It's exactly the sort of thing that Rusty was talking about, where you want to uh, isolate Different bits of uh, the spe- uh, of a galaxy, for example, to to look at the spectrum of each of those bits individually. And yeah. much has already been done in that field with instruments uh, at the Anglo Australian Telescope and elsewhere. So great stuff, and we look forward to what it can produce.
0: Yeah, it makes me wonder what else is on the James Webb Space Telescope. Well, you know, in terms of gizmos and little bits piece of pieces of technology, it must be it must have quite an array. Uh, yes, indeed, that's right. And um,
2: I, I mean, um, you know, we 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 will, as as time goes on, um, I'm sure, focus on these different instruments because they'll produce significant results. So, yeah. uh, watch this space for the kind of kit that we might be talking about in in uh, the James Webb telescopes. Yeah. Marvelous work! My
0: my favorite's the ViewMaster.
2: It's <laughs> a real ripper, that. The stereo view. <laughs> Did you have a view, Master? I did. Yeah, I, I did. never had one, but I yeah. wanted
0: one. It sort of got me, I've sort of been a bit nostalgic lately on the radio because I do a, a little segment about um, uh, historical local news. So I, I get newspaper stories from this day in history. And there was a, a story in today's um, local <coughs> paper back in 1954 about a marbles competition that was being held at the school. It was a championship. Nobody plays marbles anymore. <laughs> But, you know, I used to play marbles at school all the time yeah, and I, yeah. I just came across that story and thought, oh, wow, this is going to dredge up some memories. I'd, never, played, yeah. I'd never play for keeps though because I didn't oh, I was well, there you go. too much of a coward, didn't want to lose yeah. all my marbles. <laughs> boom, boom.
2: Yeah. I'll make a, I won't make a comment there. But um, the um, you probably still got your bag of marbles somewhere. Oh,
0: you? they'd be around. Yeah, yeah they would the be world. around. Yeah. I had quite a collection, mm, yeah. Cat's Eyes and Bonkers. Mm. bollies were the ones we bollies. The big ones? Yeah, the big yeah, we, ones. you what? call them bo- we called them bonkers.
2: Oh bonkers, okay. <laughs> <laughs> bollies in Britain.
0: Oh dear. Um, that's beside the point, but uh just it just sort of <laughs> popped into my head as we were talking about um other things. Now uh let's uh, thanks Rusty for your question. Let's go on to a question uh from Gingi Anvik, uh, who actually um uh, sent this one on social media, I think. Uh, He says, I uh, was reading up on various galaxies and came across uh, this article from 2010 about the discovery of a weird radio source emanating from the core of the starburst galaxy M82. It seems uh, it quite abruptly turned on between two observations spanning only a week back in 2009. It didn't really seem to resemble anything recognisable by the researchers, and the conclusion of its nature was as then uh, as of then unknown, not known. Uh, from what I could understand, um, their favourite hypothesis was a microquasar, but I haven't been able to find any updated info on this. Uh, there are also many things here hard to wrap my head around. But uh, what really baked my noodle was uh, the part about the apparent subluminal sideways motion of the source. I would love to hear if you can find an update on the nature of the source and if you could explain how things might appear to have have subluminal motion. Uh, it would make me a very happy nerd indeed. <laughs> uh, and he yeah. sent us an image of the uh, of the um, uh, actual galaxy M82, uh, which is causing him headaches. He reckons very frustrated with it.
2: Yeah. Mm. So so let's let's um, get it straight, Andrew. It's superluminal motion that we're talking about, not subluminal.
0: Oh, it is too. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah. so I'm inverting we, my Ps. Yeah. No, that's all right. Um, uh, look, uh, in terms of the results from M82, the galaxy um, that Gingy uh, is talking about, I, I don't, I haven't seen anything new about that um, starburst source either. Um, the microquasars are interesting. I don't know much about them, but the the sort of um, uh the the, the flagship uh, microquasar i guess the one that really gave rise to the term is an object called SS433 which i remember well from the 1970s uh when it was first discovered it's uh it, it's a it's a curious object that's spitting stuff out at a significant fraction of the speed of light um, and probably is caused by uh, i'm not sure whether it's a black hole or a neutron star but something is g- gobbling stuff up and because of magnetic fields is spitting it out along its poles, which we, we've, um, often talked talked about before in terms of quasars. Uh, and this stream of material, um, has a wobble in it. Uh, and that was what made SS 433 so interesting. It was really the, you know, the objects that everybody was talking about in, I guess, about 1978 or a bit earlier than that. Um, uh, so and and still observed in fact there's um there 's a global uh what 's it called global space watch i think uh, which is a network of small telescopes which are dedicated to observing ss four three three and they 're all situated in schools around the world mm. there 's one wow. actually one here in australia uh, uh, observing ss 433 so um, it might be an object like that that is in m eighty two um, but just turning to the the other side of Ginghi's question, the bit that bakes his noodle, is the superluminal uh, motion, uh, which is motion that appears to be taking place faster than the speed of light. That's mm. why it's called superluminal, um, faster than light. And uh, it's actually a, a kind of interesting optical illusion, Um it's relativistic because it's, uh, it only occurs when things are travelling at almost the speed of light, very near the speed of light. But um, I'll try and describe it as a word picture. Okay. Um, so I'm going to wave my hands probably. So I- imagine that we are looking uh, at a distant object that spits something else out, and that's kind of what's happening with uh, quasar. There's a blob of material comes from it. Now... If you, um, if you have no information other than uh, what you can see sort of projected on the sky, all you're going to see is this uh, the, the central object and a blob of material which is moving away from the central object. And you, if you know how far away that object is, you can calculate how fast that material is moving.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so that's fine, but now, if you now imagine that uh, blob of material is not being spitted out or spat out uh, at right angles to your line of sight. In other words, it's not being spat out as sort of across the sky, but it's actually coming towards you as well. Yeah. Uh, so it's got you know what you might call one component of its motion is coming towards you and the other is, is going acro- across the line of sight. So it's tilted. The direction of motion is tilted towards you. What that means is that as the this bright object radiates light towards you um as it gets further away from the central object its light travel time to earth is less because as well as going out from the object and apparently across the line of sight it's also coming towards you and and uh, it's there's a shorter light travel time when it gets to you know any particular point away from the central object and what that does is it means that you see it in its position sooner than it ought to be because it's come closer to you so the light travel time shorter. You see it sooner than you ought to be seeing it, and it looks as though it's moving away from the central object faster than the speed of light.
0: That's how it works. I'm sorry I haven't explained it well. No, you're no, shaking yeah, you're, your head. I, no, well, I can understand why Gingy's got a headache. Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: uh, yeah, but if you, it, it, you think of looking at, looking at it from the side, you've got us on the Earth on one side, you've got an object's, Uh, a long way away and that object's squirting something out but it's not squirting out at right angles to the line of sight it's squirting something out towards us Uh, and as that as it gets nearer towards us it means that the light reaches us sooner because of the shorter distance that it's got to travel because it's nearer to us and it's that bit that makes it look as though you're traveling faster than the speed of light that's probably the worst possible explanation of superluminal velocities. So, so it's, the, the it's a
1: It's an do illusion. A of a yeah,
2: it's an illusion. Right. They're not travelling faster than the speed of light because nothing can. That's right. Uh, but it's an an illusion. Um it was gonna be um actually I've mentioned star um Stargazer once already in this uh, show, uh, but when I was uh, thinking about that book, uh, it actually I wasn't going to write about telescopes at, at all. I was going to write about cosmic illusions, and the superluminal velocity was going to be one of the starring cosmic illusions in the book. But it never saw the light of day.
0: Boom boom. Oh, we've, <laughs> boom,
2: boom, we've yeah. had a few
0: boom boom <laughs> jokes this week. <laughs> yeah, no, mm. all.
2: they're all right. Uh,
0: Gingy, <laughs> hope that helped. <laughs> He doesn't look convinced, Gingy. <laughs> well, um, we had a crack. Yeah, we had they a crack. You thing. need a diagram, that's it. Yes. Well, I, I found one on Wikipedia, actually. Um,
2: yeah, don't which, look at the Wikipedia one because it's followed by dozens of equations.
0: Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> that's where I stopped. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, one final thing before we wrap up. I just wanted to um, pass on a. a a little bit of feedback we received via Instagram from Jordan. Uh, and this is lovely. And uh, you know, we don't actually hear from a lot of people directly, but it's, it's nice when we do. I, I wanted to send a quick message and just thank you to and everyone in the background, that's Hugh, uh, for dedicating the time to Space Nuts. What a great podcast, three exclamation marks. I work in the greater aerospace industry out of um, US Space Command in Colorado. And I will forever share your amazing show with my colleagues here. Congrats on 300. 301 is in my ear now. Uh, thanks again. Keep up the great work, Jordan. That is lovely, Jordan. Uh, thank you so much for, for sending us that note. We're we, um, we, we kind of, yeah, we're humbled by that. It's um it's nice to get a, a a bit of direct feedback from time to time and, and you know, we're so pleased that you uh, enjoy the show and that you're spreading the word and, um, you know, that that is fantastic. Just wanted to say thank you for the note. Nice, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. All right. Um, time to wrap things up Fred by the way. Uh, if you want to do uh, you want to get in touch with us, um, you can do that via our website spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io and just uh, send us a, an audio question or an audio message or you can do a, a text version as well is uh, the AMA tab up the front, uh, up the top or Um, Send us your questions uh, button on the right at spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. And um, Fred doesn't know this, but uh, Hugh and I have been talking about the possibility of video questions going forward. We're looking into that. So we get to see your ugly mugs. (laughs) That'll be good. Um, I'm sure they're not as ugly as ours. Uh, Fred, we'll wrap it up. Thanks again
2: great pleasure, Andrew. Always, always good fun.
0: <laughs> Indeed it is. Uh, that's yeah. Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here on Space Nuts, and we'll catch up with Fred again next week. Uh, thanks to Hugh in the studio. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for listening and or watching, and we'll catch you on the very next episode.
1: Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space
0: Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. And we're out. And thanks, everybody, for watching. If you caught us live, we'll see you again Next week, sometime, not sure, we'll we'll let you know. Just wait for it to pop up.